Blog Talk Radio. Talk Radio, and I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit, and our producer, Marty Oakley. In preparing for tonight's segment, I kept thinking about the movie Soylent Green that was released in 1973. I can recall watching it how futuristic it seemed, and certainly written by somebody who had quite the imagination. The movie, if you're not familiar with it, depicted New York City in the year 2022 with the cumulative effects of overpopulation, pollution, and climate catastrophe that had caused worldwide shortage of food, water, and housing. little ironic on the timing, right? The homes of the elite are fortified with private security, and they have access to clean water and natural food, while the rest are poor who live in squalor and depend on the government for food in the form of soylent red, yellow, and green wafers, along with government dictatorship. Curfews are in place, and if you break curfew, you are swept up like trash in a vehicle and never seen again. Charlton Heston plays Robert Thorne, a detective seeking answers for an elite's supposed suicide, and eventually uncovers the truth. He tells his best friend, Saul Roth, played by actor Edward G. Robinson, about what is really happening, and Roth decides he no longer wants to live this way and decides to go to a government clinic to end his life with assisted suicide. Thorne arrives too late to save him. Let me restate, this movie was made in 1973, depicting this year, 2022. I don't want to spoil the movie for you in case you're going to watch it, and I highly recommend you do. Surely I am not the only one who sees the similarities that are occurring now in 2022. One critic commented, Mr. Robinson is natural as a realistic, sensitive oldster facing the futility of living in dying surroundings. Another critic commented referencing this plot would never happen, stating, where is democracy? Where is the popular vote? Where are the uprising poor who would have suspected what was happening in a moment? So while the years have passed, what many thought would never happen is happening all around us. And when we ask the same type questions that the critic did, we have to realize the fox are guarding the hen houses. Indeed, where is democracy? And how is it that no one suspected that there would be an effort to control population by prematurely ending people's life? Hospice certainly has it down to an art. And all hospices aren't bad. Some do practice the intended minimized pain for actively dying. 
but more often we hear of loved ones being drugged into a coma and dying from toxic drugs, starvation, and dehydration. And what is their crime? Getting old? So no, no one suspected we would be here, and it is akin to the tail of the frog in lukewarm water that is heated to the point that he has no idea and is eventually dead due to the heat, but never suspected what was happening. Are we being lulled into accepting premature death as okay? Just like believing it is okay to kill an unborn child as a method of birth control? Where has our humanity gone and the respect for the sanctity of life for all, not just some? In 1997, Oregon, the first state, approved Death with Dignity Act for the terminally ill, where a physician could prescribe lethal drugs to end their life. Today, they call it several names, medical aid in dying or physical assisted suicide, physician-assisted suicide, and it's legal in 10 states plus Washington, D.C. The states, California, Colorado, Hawaii, Montana, Maine, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. In March of 2022, the state of Oregon ruled it unconstitutional to refuse assisted suicide to people from other states who are willing to travel to Oregon to die by physician-assisted suicide. You can call it many names, but the end result is death before a person's natural time. And I'm not for making decisions for anyone And while a person who has terminal illness should have choices, isn't that what hospice was supposed to do? Minimize pain and provide a more peaceful, natural end. Today, they're hastening death at a rapid pace. So why do we need another agency to do the same thing? And in many cases, you don't have to be terminally ill. You can be depressed and decide, I don't want to live anymore or someone can make that decision for you and pressure you. True, hospice isn't supposed to be killing people, especially ones who don't request, suspect, or consent, but it's happening. And yes, before someone asked, I did see the movie They Shoot Horses, Don't They? And I get the concept. The problem is that assisted suicide also leads to talking someone into believing that it is their only choice to die so they're not a burden. It's a slippery slope, and I don't believe you can shut the stable door after the horse has bolted. One case in the Netherlands, a lady was in her 80s, and she'd previously stated if she had dementia, she didn't want to live that way. In 2017, with dementia... She states she doesn't want to die just days before a physician ends her life. The family and the physician make the decision it's time for her to die. They put a sedative in her coffee to calm her. But when they go to inject the death drug, she resists, and the family forcibly holds her down for the death shot. A judge later ruled, it's okay, no crime committed. This is where we are headed. How was that not murder? A 17-year-old girl, Laura, asked for euthanasia because she's depressed and suffered from PTSD after being abused as a child and felt her life wasn't worth living. At that time, Pope Francis stated, 
euthanasia and assisted suicide are a defeat for all. We are called never to abandon those who are suffering, never giving up, but caring and loving to restore hope. So tonight, before I introduce my guest to you, I want to quickly share a couple of resources with you for those who might be in need. Always remember, knowledge is power. Halovoice.org is an excellent site to acquire information on the drugs used by hospice, and they have a medical document that can protect you and your loved ones, as well as other information. They have a hotline, 888-221-4256, and they're always looking for volunteers, so if you know what's going on and you want to help, please reach out to them. Michelle Young-Dewers, a former hospice respiratory therapist, wrote an excellent book. It's titled Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, where she shares real-life stories and information on what happens behind the doors of hospice. Michelle is a true warrior who advocates for the elderly and disabled and chose patience over the facility and its lies. Life, legal, Defense Foundation has access to pro-life attorneys in most states, and they've been able to help some get out of a facility or help them while they're in the hospital. Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, Canada or USA, advocates for the elderly and disabled and fights against euthanasia. That website is epc-usa.org or for Canadians, epcc-ca.org. Which brings me to my guest. Tonight, I'm pleased to have Rabbi David Smith, Esquire, who is the principal attorney with Smith & Associates and serves as counsel for the U.S. and foreign companies and families. He works with clients on growth opportunities, mitigating risk, and reading his information on the website, Um, He appears to be a financial wizard. But tonight, we're going to concentrate on the other half of his business, which is on the forefront of promoting the untouchable sanctity of human life and liberty, representing plaintiffs fighting to stop the death machinery of euthanasia and the lockdowns. He is an ordained Orthodox rabbi and a graduate of University of California, Berkeley, and studied molecular biology and infectious diseases and philosophy at Tulane University Law School. He is approved to practice in New York, New Jersey, and Georgia. He is married and has nine children. His website is rabbismith.org, and he has another one. It's edslaw.net. He is the attorney for Rabbi Dr. Yosef Glassman, who is also with us tonight. A little bit about Rabbi Dr. Joseph Glassman is that he is a board-certified physician in internal medicine and geriatrics and a specialist in Jewish cannabinoid therapeutics. After his fellowship in general internal medicine at John Hopkins, he taught clinical geriatrics at Tufts and Harvard Medical School. He currently directs the hospitalist program at the community hospital 
in New Jersey. So he's very familiar with hospice as well. Dr. Glassman writes for and has appeared in Huffington Post, New Jersey Jewish Link, and other articles for his work in integrative geriatrics and cannabinoid therapeutics. As trustee for Lifeline Legal Fund, Com. He has appeared on ABC, CBS, Fox, USA Today, Jerusalem Post, as well as other outlets for his work fighting for the rights of older and frail patients. So I am honored to have Rabbi Smith and Rabbi Dr. Glassman on our program tonight to share their vast knowledge and help them fight against legislation in New Jersey with assisted suicide laws that create an opportunity for the elderly and disabled to be taken advantage of and convinced, in many cases, to end their life prematurely because they don't want to be a burden to someone. We must all stand together to protect those who cannot protect themselves. So, Rabbi Smith, thank you for coming on tonight. And I will let you start by telling us how you and Rabbi Dr. Glassman got involved with the New Jersey Death with Dignity Act. Well, thank you so much uh, for having us. And it's uh, just a tremendous opportunity to talk about what's so dear to our hearts, which is that life is infinitely sacred and and, um, meaningful and that we are created by God in his image for the purpose of living out the life that uh, he assigns to us, but every life is high quality. Every life is essential. And so um, I'll speak for myself in terms of the, the initial part of this. It was my experience. I had no idea about these uh, euthanasia laws um, in happening in New Jersey, and someone contacted me just after the governor signed it into law in the beginning of um, May 2019. And I really didn't know what the person was talking about, and he tried to explain to me that there's law and and um, finally showed me what was really happening. And we took on the case, and um, Dr. Glassman, who's also a rabbi, well, both of us are ordained rabbis, and, uh, but he practices medicine, and uh, he, he was brave to become the plaintiff, and, uh, along with a, a pharmacist in New Jersey and uh, a patient who was uh, terminally ill. And um, it was quite a journey for us, because we began to see what was really going on. And we prepared our case. Um, We went into the Superior Court of New Jersey in Trenton, Mercer County, New Jersey, in August, beginning of August of 2019, just three days before the law was to go into effect. And uh, we stood before the judge and we made our plea that he should put a temporary restraining order against the law and uh, his initial reaction was, well, you know, we should give everyone time to brief this and let's, let's leave this out for a few weeks. And I said, you know, Your Honor, this, this, this life and death, people are going to start being killed on Thursday at night at midnight. So he was like, well, do you want me to rule on this now? I said, yes, Your Honor, you know, this is life and death and, and we're praying that you will rule on this now. So he sent us out um, for lunch and then he came back afterwards and he, from the bench, read a decision granting us a temporary restraining order. And there's a couple of things I just want to highlight in this whole process. Now, first of all, as we were driving to court that morning, myself and an associate, um, suddenly it occurred to me, this, this whole case sounds very familiar. 
But this whole concept of euthanasia sounds very familiar. Where have I heard about this before? And I started to, I, while we're driving, my, my associate was doing the driving, I was sitting there reviewing my notes, and I started to Google about uh, euthanasia and the Nazis. And what I came to learn in the time I had while we were driving was about the Action T4 program. And it started to open my eyes to the reality that this is something that had happened in Germany. It was an advancement of their uh, plan to eliminate those that considered lives unworthy of life. And um, they, at the same time, the Euthanasia Society of America was formed with the exact same euthanasia goals as Hitler had. And, uh, and it was directed, by the way, at, at that point, the euthanasia campaign was directed at non-Jewish people, at the, at the average German. Um, and so but what it, what it did in realizing that is it just accelerated the sense of urgency to realize this is really, really um, not just a matter of life and death for the individuals who face the prospect of um, being murdered, uh, or murdering themselves and being assisted in, their, in this murder, but also this is a direct threat to everyone in society. And what we came to learn was that there was a doctor that ran this Action T4 program that they actually went on to run the death camps uh, in which so many millions of people were murdered. And so that was, that was one thing that was a shocking thing, and I brought that up in court when I, when I got to court. And the, the other thing that was very shocking was that the judge, although I was very grateful and, and God should bless him, He's now since retired, but he, that he put a temporary restraining order into place. He said that the reason that he was going to grant his temporary restraining order was not because it's murder and not because of uh, the you know, right to life or you know, equal protection under the law and so forth, but just because of our ninth cause of action, which we thought was the weakest point of our cause of action, and we just put it in at the last moment, which was a cause of action that the Board of Medical Examiners and the Board of Pharmacists had failed to promulgate regulations as required by the law. And he said, that, that's enough to stop the law. That's what he's going to use as the basis to stop the law. And so on one hand, we were elated that we got this temporary restraining order. On the other hand, really devastated over the fact that the only basis on which a judge could see fit to stop murder was uh, a technicality. We, what it came to my mind as he was speaking that this was like you know, uh, running into court to try to stop a train going into a concentration camp, and the judge saying, well, you know, uh, there's no basis to stop this, other than the fact that the train lacks a certain license or the engineer uh, has not renewed his, uh, you know, uh, license to be a train engineer, must stop until that's corrected. So um, we were successful. The, the, the temporary restraining order was in place. So that was very distressing to see the, the limited thinking and just the, the rule-based thinking and the a total loss of the connection to the real sanctity of life and, and what murder is about. And uh, that temporary restraining uh, order lasted for 13 days. It was appealed and went up to the Supreme Court of New Jersey twice. And uh, at the end of the 13 days, the appellate division dissolved the temporary restraining order, uh, tragically, and um, the Supreme Court upheld the dissolution of the temporary restraining order. Now, what we later found out is that we and this is to the judge's credit and Dr. Glassman's credit, and, and uh, we're grateful to have been part of that, was that we actually saved lives because later on articles are written in the papers about different people who had wanted to uh, make use of this Medical Aid in Dying Physician Assisted Suicide Act by taking poison at the earliest opportunity, and they were blocked because of the judge's temporary restraining order. And the end result is that um, 
they survived for a much longer period of time, and they, they died a natural death. Um, and their families wrote about how beautiful was uh, their time with them and so forth. One of the husbands writing how his wife gave him a smile um, days after that, because she was no longer qualified at that point to be able to ask for the poison, um, and uh, how that was such a, like the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful moments of his life. So we saw that lives were actually saved, um, and and people had very very meaningful experiences. So since then, the case has been uh, what the, the um, subsequently the attorney general made a motion to dismiss. And the new judge who came in, who was basically, unfortunately, a, an appointee, a, a former deputy attorney general, very much whatever the law says is good enough for him. Uh, and uh, he granted the motion to dismiss. And so the case was dismissed, and now it's on appeal. And uh, just the beginning of May, just a month ago, was oral argument on the matters of the appeal. So that case is still pending. And, uh, you know, once that uh, ruling is given on that, then there's a matter of, uh, you know, appealing it to the Supreme Court and um, of, of New Jersey. So that's what we're up to. And I want to introduce Dr. Glassman because he's, he's really a tremendous hero over here. Uh, he really took upon himself not only the, the mission to put his career on the line and his name on the line, to stand up where all other doctors in New Jersey, even though most doctors or maybe the majority of doctors in New Jersey are opposed to this law, but they themselves were not willing to come out into the open and say that they are opposed to it and put their names on the case. Um, he was willing to do that. And uh, he, uh, you know, in his merit, it says, he who saves a life is as if he saved the entire world. And uh, there's definitely many, many people that Dr. Glassman has saved in this particular case, in addition to his life-saving work as a doctor. And um, so we're just grateful to have him over here. And he then, he then created a, a, a uh, nonprofit, the Lifeline Legal Fund.com, to uh, be able to really champion this cause and to be able to not only be able to raise the money necessary to continue this litigation, but to turn the tide and go from being on the defensive and to go into the, the mode of changing the, the thinking of society and the, each individual in society from where it's okay for 60% or 70% of people in New Jersey for murder to go on um, in their own state. To We want to turn that tide until every single human being in New Jersey and the United States uh, respects the, every single the sanctity of every life and, and will not tolerate it. And so that's what his goal is, and that's what he's, he's leading the charge in. And, and so I'd like to introduce Dr. Dr. Glassman, Rabbi Dr. Glassman. Thank you so much, Rabbi Smith. I appreciate the introduction, and it's an honor to work with you as well. And I uh, really have to say we did this together. It certainly wasn't me alone. It was you and the entire team. So thank you for giving me the, the credit, but it really, it's really all of us and uh, all the people on this front. Uh, and yes, you know, we, we together, you know, put together the lifelinelegalfund.com to try to really push this forward, not to, not only to overturn what's happening in New Jersey, but to really push this all the way through the consciousness, the legal consciousness and the moral consciousness of the United States. So, and thankfully, thank God we didn't make a lot of headlines with our initial push because we really froze the law, uh, so to speak, uh, even for a brief moment. And like you said, we did, you know, with God's help, we saved lives. 
even with even for that brief period. And uh, so I'm honored to continue to work on that. This is something I certainly this is a, an issue that I see every day at the micro level um, in terms of individual patients. And I say micro certainly it's it's very macro as well. But at the daily my daily work in the ICU, we see we see this happening all the time. There, before I was involved in trying to overturn this law, to freeze this law, I worked with doctors and nurses that were, quote unquote, putting people out of their misery every day, um, as opposed to simply trying to control pain until nature takes its, takes its course, until God does what God does uh, at the end of life. Certainly we know that it's a fine line between treating someone's pain and using those same pain medications to accelerate death. It's a very fine line uh, because we know that those same medications that we use to alleviate pain can accelerate death. But for those of us who are on the side of treating pain and alleviating su- alleviating suffering uh know that that is a re- it's a real fine balance it's a real fine balance uh, many many of the doctors and nurses that i work with on a daily basis i feel really do want to help the patients they want the patients to be out of pain but they sadly see death accelerating death as the way out of pain versus simply treating the pain in life which is always doable, it's always feasible. We, all, we have the technology, we have the tools, we have the medications that can treat pain without accelerating death. They, they exist. We all, uh, doctors and nurses know they exist. And I think we've talked about this before, that I think a lot of this has to do with, I don't think, I, don't think, I, I hesitate to say it's evil intentions. I don't really think it is. I think it's more a misunderstanding and a, and practitioners feeling very uncomfortable themselves. People are not comfortable with the dying process, simply. They're not comfortable themselves with the dying process, even if somebody is not in pain, even if someone is on um, high doses of morphine. Many, many practitioners, nurses, doctors included, cannot, do not have patience themselves to, for that slow process. And so, sadly, accelerating patients' death is their only way of handling it. That's certainly the most crude way of handling it, and certainly the most um, dangerous way of handling their own personal discomfort with the dying process. So that's that's what I'm trying to do again in the micro level in my own hospital. Keep, you know, holding seminars about the question of quality of life, because that's really the that's really the topic that comes up over and over again. People see someone dying and they say, they have, what kind of quality of life do they have? Or if, even if they're not dying, even if they're wheelchair bound or they have a very deep bed sores, the demented, things of that nature, people say, well, they don't have quality of life. And the reality is every life is high quality. We don't know. We don't know what their quality of life is. We have no, sometimes we have no way even of asking them. We're assuming, based upon our own projection, what we're seeing, that their quality of life is poor. But 
that's not the case. And we don't know if it's the case. And even if someone says their quality of life is poor, there are many, many tools that we have. We have have a a large pharmacopoeia that can improve quality of life, even if a patient does say that their quality of life is poor. Um, And that's, you know, that's what we're here to do, one by one, patient by patient, to change that change that uh, mentality of uh, ending life early as a treatment for their own anxiety and discomfort with the process of dying. That that is actually true. Um, we don't know what someone's quality is, and if you have dementia and someone or they have memory issues, but you're happy or you have moments where you're lucid and then you go into a state where you're not lucid, that we don't know what they're feeling. And, you know, they're the only ones that can tell that. And when it comes to that point in time when it is God's time and it is their time, then there's going to be a natural death. But certainly you can minimize pain, you can minimize their um, anxiousness, but it doesn't mean you drug them into a coma where you hasten their death. And I think that's where the problem lies is that they do think somebody else is making the determination that your life is not worth living, and they hasten your death. And nobody has the right to do that. That's so right. And, you, and I think go ahead. you mentioned before, I think you mentioned, I'm sorry, I, you mentioned before that Many, many times, I see it over and over again, people are convinced to, that their life is not worth living, it has low quality, uh, and they're forced into these situations many, many times. It's, not, it's, it's the minority of cases that patients are choosing this themselves. Well, but they don't even know, right? Um, you were saying that the doctors and the nurses, you know, might be given extra morphine because they don't want to see that person suffer. Is this at the hospital or is this in the hospice facility? Uh, I work primarily in the hospital, in the ICU, and on the wards, the hospital wards, inpatient hospital wards. So okay. it comes up comes up frequently in the ICU. But there, we you know we have inpatient hospice in the in the hospital itself. So mm-hmm. uh, when it, when someone's too unstable to move home or to another hospice facility, we 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 do the hospice care ourselves. Care. Okay, so in the cases where the family, you know, where a doctor or a nurse makes a decision that the quality of life is not worth that person living, and they do give them an excessive amount of drugs, does the family ever realize that this happened, and do they ever question it, or do are they told that, well, you know, their body just wasn't strong enough, and, you know, do they just accept that the person died not knowing that they were drugged to death? Most of the time a physician who's in the hospice field will tell the family that what their plan is to put, say, put them on a morphine drip, for example, an accelerated morphine drip. They will often tell them that, and they'll convince them that the patient will not feel uh, dryness of their mouth because of the morphine or they won't feel, um, you know, their whole body shutting down because of the morphine. They'll convince them that it's a pleasant process 
and they won't feel any discomfort, the discomfort of dehydration, for example. But again, there's no way to know that. So uh, 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 often what will happen is that they will tell them the plan. Um, and many times, patients, you know, most of the time families will go along with it. Even if they're devoutly religious, many times they'll be convinced, you know, they'll resist it at first. Many people who have a religious background and believe in the sanctity of every second of life will often be convinced by hospice physicians or hospice nurses uh, to simply give up and end it early uh, and accelerate the, the death with high, high dose morphine. So it, it is, it's always, it's usually above board, above, you know, but, but it's, uh, it's with the, it's with the a false premise oftentimes I find. Well, that, that's true. Um, because you don't know how long that person could have lived and what their life would have been like if you had just minimized the pain, if they are indeed in pain. But what I found personally with my mother, who you know, I think I told you in um, Rabbi Smith earlier when we were talking, that my mom was murdered. And for myself, as well as many other of, well, all of my guests that have come on, they were never told we're going to start giving your loved one morphine. They're going to, you know, they're not going to experience any pain. They're not going to be able to talk to you. It, they were never told this, you know, what you're saying, that, you know, it's not going to make their mouth, you know, it, they were told it will help them breathe, or they weren't told at all what drugs were being given to them unless the person specifically asked the question. And unfortunately, because we are naive, we didn't know to ask certain questions. So while I appreciate, you know, that, that your facility is, you know, telling them it may not be totally truthful what they're saying, but in a case, in the cases of my guest and myself, we were not told that any of this was going to happen. We were led to believe that those drugs were not hastening the person's death. And, and I find that, you know, it, that's not just a lie but a mission, but that's just a bold-faced lie because when my guest and myself questioned the facility where our loved ones were being drugged to death, they were not honest with us. We did not get an honest feedback on what was going on. And that's wrong because you do not have the right to decide that someone's life is of no value. Absolutely, absolutely right. And I think what's often done is, uh, even if it is above board, the, um, uh, or even if it's, even if the the initial intention is framed as we're just going to treat the suffering, the nurses will often take freedoms. I find, even mm -hmm. if the doctor necessarily doesn't intend for that to happen, but I think what you know there are there are there are freedoms given. PRN, you know, orders, for example are given right. in, in, in excess or, you know, when they're not necessarily needed. So I think there's a lot of freedom there, so to speak, from, from, for the nurses to, to give how much, as much as they would like many times. Right. And, you know, we've often wondered, um, Marty and I had done a show back last year about serial killers because, you know, you stated earlier that you don't necessarily think that they're doing it because they're evil. They just don't want to see the person suffer. 
and Marty and I had done a program on serial killers and what causes someone to have the ability to murder someone day in, day out, and feel no remorse for that. But I think something um, that you, um, Rabbi Smith, and I were talking about the other day, that it's more in some cases about the person, the caregiver perhaps, that cannot stand to see their loved one in pain. And so it's not about the loved one passing, but it's more about I can't bear to see my loved one in pain. Therefore, if I end their pain, I end my pain. So were we talking about that? Right. It's, okay. Yeah, it's almost a, almost like a release. It's like, and I think for a lot of these people, I mean, I, I know from my uh, my father's passing that uh, I was told that the same thing, the morphine, which I don't know if I was told this by the hospice people. They actually didn't say anything. They came to his apartment. I flew down there. But other people told me, the doctor in the synagogue said, well, this actually eases and accelerates the passing at the same time. But it wasn't really clear. There was no, you know, I didn't have, no, I had any options. And I don't know if my mother knew if she had any options, nor my father. It was kind of like just, it was just happening. Um, so I think that but there's, a, there's a varying degree of information provided. Um, with varying degrees of intention, but the bottom line is that there is an alternative. And if I, if I could, I wanted to bring up something that I, I'm listening to you speak, and I hear this a lot, and I, I know there's a lot of different peoples with different backgrounds that are against euthanasia and so forth, and some people try to like almost secularize the arguments, try to make logical arguments based on slippery slope arguments, or it's, you, can't make, you shouldn't be able to make this decision for somebody else, or someone who doesn't want this is going to be forced into doing this. But I think we really have to get to the core of it, which is that a person does not have permission to make this decision even for themselves. And a, and a doctor or no human being has any permission to assist a person who's in that state of desperation that decides that they want to take their own life, whatever their calculations are. We're, we're not allowed to participate in assisting them. And, it's interesting, if we go back to the book of Samuel, to, uh, book of, to Samuel, the, uh, it brings over there the death of King Saul. And the, King Saul says to this person, this one of his soldiers, that he's in, he's in agony and that he's barely alive, and he asks the soldier to please finish him off. Now, later on, uh, King David has him executed, this the person who follows through on King Saul's risk, but what, uh, uh, wish. But what do we see over here? We see a man who was a, a mortally wounded. There was, he, he was in the process of dying. He was in tremendous pain. He was in air, uh, agony, and he self-described it as agony and barely alive. He was surrounded by enemies who were going to um, capture him at, at any moment and possibly... Uh, either kill him or, or torture him, making his pain even worse. And he, he despite this imminence of his going to die, the, the, there's no debate about his chances of survival here. Um, and it was, however, not optional and not a choice for King Saul to make that request. And it was a crime, a crime of murder, for that soldier to have followed the king's request and to have then brought his life to an end. 
And I think that that's so important to, to make that clear because King David, if, you, if we look closely at after King David tears his clothes over the, dis, the terrible distressing news of the death of even of his opponent, but uh, still the king, um, the anointed one, he says, he says, to him, how dare you? How did you dare? In verse 14 of, of chapter one, he says, how did you dare? King David said to him, to lift your hand and kill the Lord's anointed. And then he, in verse, uh, chapter, uh, sorry, uh, verse 15, he instructs one of the attendants to execute this soldier. And why did King David then say, uh, mention that it's, you, he killed the Lord's anointed? And, and the answer is because under Torah, for a person to be executed for murder, it requires very stringent requirements. It requires that he... Um, have been warned and that there be two witnesses that saw the person do it. And since it was lacking the warning and lacking the two witnesses, it would have been impossible for King David to bring this soldier up on charges of murder, uh, which would have been an executable crime, a capital crime. So King David therefore had to resort to his status as a king to be able to stand up for the honor of the kingship and kill, execute this soldier on the basis that he had killed the king. So he was able to um, supersede the requirement for the witnesses by saying, well, this, you, by your own word, you just told us you killed the king, and that alone gives me the power to execute uh, you as a murderer, a murderer of a king. And so I just think it's so important that we be honest about this and we not be afraid to tell the world that God Almighty is saying that every human being is created in God Almighty's image. And it is forbidden for any human being to take the life of another human being. And not only that, but the crime of murder is even more horrible, more heinous, and more gruesome. The closer the relationship is, so if someone is going to kill someone uh, with a shot from you know, three miles away, with a very a sharpshooter um, versus someone who kills a, a neighbor versus someone who kills a family member. For each level is a, a more and more, it's all murder, but it's a more heinous destruction of the divine image until God forbid a person kills his spouse or his own child that is, or a parent that is even a higher level. And the most devastating type of murder is suicide. Because the relationship a person has with himself is the most intimate relationship possible. And by killing himself under any circumstances, he is violating that, that trust, that intimacy by murder. And so therefore, there is no circumstance under which a person has the ability to opt in or make the choice, informed choice, knowing it. a person is not allowed to reach that conclusion that his life is now it's justifiable for him, uh, whether in desperation or whether in clear thought out process, uh, that his life should no longer be lived because God Almighty is saying that you're created in the divine image and the divine image cannot be destroyed by any human being, including yourself. And I think we have, Dr. Glassman, I feel very strongly, we have to bring this to the front and center. This is the reason. It's not based on law. We're not making an argument based on, uh, you know, legal arguments and, and uh and logical arguments, and what happens if we allow this to happen. That is the effect. All those things are true, but they are the consequences of failing to see that every human being is created in God's image, and failing to see that there is a divine, immutable command 
that a human being cannot be murdered uh, no matter what the age, uh, no matter what the circumstances of their life. Well, I think when one of the slippery slopes, which we were talking about earlier, is when someone talks somebody else into believing that their life no longer is of any quality, right? And I remember Marty saying at one point she went to a hospice meeting with people that were asking for volunteers, and she had thought about volunteering for hospice. I know that they do, you know, they have grief counselors and people that bring food. And in the meeting, they had talked to them about talking to the patient and telling the patient that, you know, you've lived a long life and, you know, you're, you're not feeling good anymore, you're not able to walk or, you know, you're having problems breathing, you know, whatever their illness is, to accentuate it and to tell them, you know, you've lived a long life and, you know, now it's time to go because you're, you're being a burden to your family and you don't want them to have to stop living so that they can take care of you and basically to guilt the patient. And then on the other side, they were telling, you know, the uh, volunteers, well, then you tell the family that, you know, this person's lived a long time and it's wrong for you to want to hold on to them and to keep them here. You need to just say goodbye and just tell them it's okay for them to go because, you know, you're you're holding them here and you need to let them go. So there is a lot of brainwashing that is done to try to convince a person that they need to end their life. And that can be done either at hospice or at assisted suicide clinics, you know, when you go to the doctor. And I think that there's been um, graphs or, you know, when they do studies on this, that there is a large percentage of people who go to the physician who talk to them about ending their life for whatever reason, and they don't take the pills that they give them. They don't follow through with it, which leads me to believe that sometimes during a situation, you know, when you feel like my life is futile and and you don't want to go on or you're in a great deal of pain, that you go and you request it, but then later you decide, I don't want to do this, and then you have that right to do it. The lady in the Netherlands didn't get that opportunity. She decided later she didn't want it done, but it was too late because her family held her down while the physician killed her. That was straight-out murder. But I think that there is a huge risk when we open it up for assisted suicide for people to take advantage of other people and convince them that they need to end their life. And as a doctor, and I agree with you on this, as a doctor, you are supposed to help people. You are not supposed to be ending somebody's life. And so it puts you in a position of having to do something that you signed, you know, initially a contract that said you're going to help people. You're not going to hurt them. You're certainly not going to kill them. So... I just don't see how we, as as a country, and I know it's not we because I'm certainly not a part of it, neither are you, but I don't see how this country is coming in and starting to dictate and 
you make people feel like that that their life is over and that they shouldn't be living. Well, it's it's terrible, and it's not just the end result of the murder, but how it's being accomplished based on the stories that you're sharing is through the destruction of the fabric of relationship between parent and child. And it's interesting that in the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment on the right tablet, which is the one that starts with, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, uh, is the commandment to honor your mother and your father. And um, to honor your father and mother. And the reason for that is because the foundation of the reality of the knowing that God is the Lord our God who took us out of Egypt is honoring one's father and mother. And that is how we experience a relationship to God. And the fabric of that relationship is upon which all relationship is of God, to God and with God is based. So the way that it, it, it works to destroy civilization is to destroy and erode that relationship between parent and child. So the parent has a natural desire to want to live for the child and to continue to see and be of benefit to the child and their very existence, whether it is a lot of work for the child or not, is actually a benefit to the child because they're giving the child the opportunity to do acts of loving kindness that are part of the fulfillment of honoring their father and mother. And the natural way a child is is to protect their parents from any sort of harm. What are these Absolutely. murder but what are these what these murderer groomers are doing is they are coming along and they are whispering a person's in their person's ear and twisting it around so that they are m- manipulating the compassion a person has and the love the person has for this other family member to turn it into a tool for murder rather than a tool for a, a means of protection and glorifying and sanctifying the person's life. And so we have to we have to call that out what it is because that and that's happening at the school level, even as little children are being taught to no longer respect their parents and no longer um, sanctify their parents' lives and, and vice versa, but particularly among the children. So that by the time they come to have these whispers of murder whisper in their ears, they already are in a, so to speak, a attenuated state of connection to their parents. And that, that's the tragedy of the descent of civilization. And I would, well, I would I just think... echo that. Okay, yeah, and I think that um, I can remember my, you know, after my mom was murdered in 2017, when my dad came to live with my husband and me, he said he was he was um, 89 at the time, and he said, "Well, I can't leave you now because I'll make you an orphan." And you know, we spent, you know, we had four and a half years together, and it was it wasn't easy, but. It was seeing my dad as an adult and him seeing me as an adult. So there was a different relationship, even though it was still parent-child. And eventually, that my dad did get dementia, and so the roles were reversed. I was his, like his mother, and he was my child. But it gave us the opportunity to spend that quality time together, and we got to know each other as adults. And I think that is a precious gift to do that, you know, for a parent and a child to spend that time together. And, I, you know, I mean, I wouldn't give anything for the time that I got to spend with my dad, even though it was difficult at times towards the end. I would not take that away. So 
in my circumstance, you know, there was no way that my dad was going to go to a nursing home or to hospice because I had seen the truth of what hospice had done to my mom, and it was not going to happen. So we need to be at that point where we realize that family is the most precious thing, and we are supposed to protect them. Uh, just like a baby, I, you know, I mean, I believe you should protect the baby, you know, before it's born and after it's born and, you know, all in between. It's, it's you know, it's from cradle to grave natural to me. That's right. That's right. It's all about protecting the vulnerable, the, the most vulnerable people in our society. Right. And uh, every, you know, it's about really changing the mentality that every second is infinitely valuable. And when we don't see every second of life as infinitely valuable, we, you know, the society will cut that short. The, the most vulnerable will cut short uh, because of that lack of realization of, of infinite good, infinite uh, value. And I think what I've seen in the, the, with many practitioners is that they'll convince family members They'll take the goodness that we're talking about and the, and the desire to do good and protect and they'll make that person feel guilty for those feelings and say, no, 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 you're, caught, you're making them suffer more by your right. goodness. You, know, you need to let him go. So yes. what would you say, what would you suggest to our listeners if they are giving your loved one the morphine, Ativan, um, you know, Seroquel, Haldol, those drugs, what would be a way that a person could say to the doctor or to the nurse to get them to stop doing that, to, you know, to relay to them, I want my loved one to live until they die a natural death? What would be, you know, what kind of questions should they ask and how could they go about keeping their loved ones safe, say, like, for instance, if they're in ICU because you can't get in there, in many cases, with COVID. So how would you handle that? The medical power of attorney, would the doctor Mm -hmm. listen to that and you as the adult child saying, you know, do not give my loved one morphine, you know, I don't want them to be put into a coma, you know, because you don't want to be confrontational because you don't want to make them angry and make them hurt your loved one. I mean, they're not supposed to do right. that, but, I mean, reality is it could happen. So what would you suggest yes. to someone? I think it's really um, saying from the start to the doctors, to the nurses who are caring for that patient, and have it written clearly in the chart so that everybody can see, so it's not, you know, from shift to shift it doesn't change. I think it has to be clear that, uh, the goal is to certainly the goal is to not have the patient suffer, not have the family member suffer, but never to accelerate death. And that's something I use, and in, in, that's a, that's a phrase I use in the hospital quite often when I'm trying to explain to nurses with with Orthodox Jewish patients is that it's very it's very important to know that you know because they'll ask me for accelerating for uh, increasing doses of morphine for certain patients, and I tell them very clearly because you know, the families are. Are there that you know it's, it's the it's the Orthodox Jewish belief never to accelerate death and and once they understand that and I think that's really the key 
one of the key words. We, we, we don't want to accelerate death. We want to treat suffering. We want to treat pain. Yes. Nobody wants our, our family member to suffer. Yes. But we do not want to accelerate, accelerate death. Accelerate. I think that's the phrase to use, in my opinion, because those, those medications are useful still. And, and I think it's, you know, we still need them, um, but, you know, to alleviate pain and suffering. But that, but that said, they, they, it's just not using them gratuitously and, uh, and, in the body. Right. And to so be you, informed, I, and to say, call me, call me, you know, say family members, family members should say, call me, please, if you're going to give these drugs. I, I want to know the dose. I want to know. We have the right to know. Exactly. And you have the right to know before it is given, and you have a right to know to get a copy of your loved one's charts and to tell them, I want to know what the charts say, you know, what you're giving them. And you you have the right to know at that time, not after they're dead, because then it's too late. Um, That's right. Since you're in ICU, the post are you familiar with the the post form, right? The physician's order. Yes. yes. Okay. Very familiar. So tell me, I've heard I've heard many many bad things about it. So it is my belief that if you sign that, you are giving the doctor the authority to make decisions for you. For your loved one, um, for example, if you've signed that and you're in there and they come in and they see that on your charts you haven't had a COVID shot or you haven't had a pneumonia shot or whatever, they then have the right to go ahead and give that to you because is does it not mean that you are turning over your medical um, health to the doctor for the doctor to make the decisions? That's a great question. The post is uh, designed to, tr- to try to give the patient uh, rights to choose what treatments they want in advance, in, in particular cases where they can't voice those opinions or their, their wishes. So mm-hmm. the post should, should be and is a document that specifies those wishes in advance. Uh, down to many, down to many details. It's a very detailed form. It includes uh, resuscitation. It includes uh, intubation. It includes feeding. It includes dialysis. Uh, should, that, should that need occur, many many things can be added to those to that form. Uh, I don't think it gives blanket autonomy to the doctor or nurses to, to make decisions uh, with, with the signature. Certainly, uh, it does give autonomy. You know, if a specific treatment is declined or uh, or advocated for on that form, it gives that it gives the doctor permission to to follow those wishes, basically, but not necessarily to do what he or she wants. So, um, based on my experience and many of my previous guest experience. Um, with losing a loved one due to the medical profession, mostly in hospice, some in hospitals, but mostly in hospice. I would not, if I go into a, well, for one thing, I have stayed away from hospitals. Fortunately, I haven't had to go in. But um, even with my dad here, I would not take him there. Um, it, fortunately, again, I didn't need to. You know, he he did have to go for broken arm when he was at my brother's house, but he went in and they set his arm and my brother stayed with him and, you know, made sure they didn't give him anything. But I personally would not sign a post form because I have a medical power of attorney 
that dictates what is to be done and everything is to be done. I would never sign a DNR. So if you refuse to sign a post and you tell them that you have your own medical directive and you give them a copy of that, is that sufficient that they will not sign that or they will not put one of those in your file? Uh, yes. I mean, you don't. a person does not have to have a post um, by any means. You, it certainly is a viable solution to, to this problem to some degree uh, in keeping the loved one alive and, and, the, and the family informed simply by not sending a post because that would that would force the hand of the doctor or nurse to call uh, when there's a critical moment, you know, mm-hmm. Be- because if, there's, if a post is in place, they don't, and, the, and it specifies in that post form to not do X, Y, or Z treatments, then they won't call because it says it in the form, and, I, and, and then they can do whatever it says on that form. So if it's not signed, then they're compelled to call the family and say, hey, here's this new situation. What do you want us to do? and then you're act more actively involved. So you're right. I think by not signing it, sometimes that would give you give the family a little bit more control over what's happening on day to day. Right. And and that's what I would want. Um, you know, with my dad, we had the medical power of attorney, um, which specified everything. And, you know, I was totally in charge of that because it was my, you know, my duty, my goal, my desire to protect him. So, um, I just wanted to know about that, you know, about the post. So, um, okay. And if we have any callers in, if you hit one, if you want to call in, um, you may do so. But um, I wanted to get back to um, Rabbi Smith, too, to find out what you and he are doing with the New Jersey legislation. Well, at this Is that point in time, something you're going to do? Go ahead. Yes, yeah, so at this point in time, I've spoken. Unfortunately, there's a very passive attitude among uh, legislators. Um, the, the legislation in New Jersey was passed by only uh, one vote, and um, tragically, people who should have spoken up against it did not uh, speak up against it. At this point, um, there's no legislation pending. There, are, there actually is one uh, very brave assemblyman, uh, Robert Oth, who introduced legislation uh, at the time of our case to repeal the law. And he actually hosted a press conference that I spoke at in the, the state building in, New, in uh, Trenton. Um, but I, if I remember correctly, the Speaker of the House wouldn't even put it, bring it to the floor. So... Um, at this point in time, there is, I don't think there's any real active legislative effort to repeal this. Um, the only chance, I think, and, and I don't want to give up on the legislative possibility. If the people wake up, they'll obviously change the legislators. But the spirit of the legislators is not one to actually reverse this at this moment in time. I think that the, the key is the litigation is vital um, because – it's only after the litigation ends that then compassion and choices and these other desk lobbies um, come out of the, their uh, bring their agenda to the forefront and then they keep expanding the death law. So then it's no longer terminal for six months. It's terminal for a year. It's no longer just a doctor could do it. It could be a nurse. It's no longer a personal visit. It's on the phone. Um, it goes on and on 
how it's expanded. We've seen that in other states. But they can't make any move forward while the legislation, while the litigation is pending because the, the, the current litigation is still under threat so long as the case is pending. So um, in a sense, Dr. Glassman, in this case, while we're praying for and working for an absolute reversal of the law, at the same time, every day that the law is being challenged, we are preventing additional deaths because today someone has to be six months um, uh, with this uh, you know, death sentence of, of terminal illness promulgated by a white coat. Um, that is something that is uh, six months now. Now, if, we, if he wasn't challenging the case right now, they might already be up to moving it to a year. So someone who's got seven months to live right now, his life is being saved because Dr. Glassman is challenging this in court. So he's, he's saving lives from the very fact of the pending status of litigation. So I think that that's the key. But the more key is the fact that um, it's an issue of getting to the hearts of people. Because, you know, I was talking before with the whole parent-child relationship. We saw that a government uh, decreed that parents could not be visited by the children in the hospital in 2020, and children just obeyed. It's shocking. It, it's, it's to bring tears to the eyes to, to realize that a child would allow their parent die to die in, without any children around and without any input from the family uh, just because someone signed an order that that's the case. And it was possible to get into the hospitals. I know a family that went and got themselves, uh, on an online basis, they got themselves certifications for um, being nursing staff, and they would go into the hospital. There was a, someone in the hospital for 18 months in a, in a coma. Uh, there was never a moment that there were not family members by the side because they would go in, they would dress up as um, people working in the hospital, and they got themselves, quote-unquote, jobs in the hospital, and they got themselves the certification they needed to make sure that they were always by their parents' bedside. So that wow. comes from, from having a, a dedication to what God wants and not what the governor wants. And if you have that attitude, then nothing's going to stop you from getting your parent out of the hospital or being by your parent's side. But the, the problem is that the, most people didn't do that. And that shows the, the degree to which the ties that bind have been severed and eroded to the fact that person's like, okay, well, they can't go to the hospital, so they'll just maybe do FaceTime. If, if the hospital will even allow it. We need to change Well, I know that. a lot of people tried. I mean, I do yeah, know that but, a lot, you know, like in New York but and in other places, I know a lot of people tried to get to their loved ones, and they were only allowed to see them from their window. Right. But, try, that, was, that was not trying to the same degree that the mother would have tried to save her child from an oncoming car she would have put her life her body in front of the car and that yeah. child just trying by asking for permission was not really trying they trying okay. would have looked like going into the hospital and overwhelming the hospital security system to the extent that it would have been full of people and the hospital would have given up because they could have either closed down and given up all their income or tolerated the fact that there were uh, you know patients relatives in every corner and in every of every room making sure that their parents are taken care of. Mm-hmm. It just, Marcia, I mean, you that have a caller. You that have a caller just, on. Okay. That was, hold on okay, one second. Here. That was just a horrible thing that happened to people at that time because, it, you know, there were so many people that died 
by themselves thinking that their loved ones didn't want to see them. It was horrible. Okay, Marty. Yes. Uh, Caller, your area code 540. You're live and on the air. Hello. This is Liz Eisner from the Murder by Hospice Facebook group. Um, How are you all? Hi. um, I'd like to, well, I have a comment. And first of all, I'd like to thank uh, Marcia, you, and Marty for doing these shows and spreading awareness on this subject. Um, Thank you. But, you know, as you know, my husband was forcibly euthanized in a hospice right under my nose. They broke all of uh, just about every law there was, patient rights, my right as representative. Um, They didn't explain the drug. They gave him Haldol after I said not to give it to him. Um, But they um, terminally sedated him. And then they overdosed him with morphine after I said, you know, let's cut back on it. But um, my comment is about the assisted suicide law is that the fact that we have these just say that, you know, it speaks to um, that our health care system is failing, has failed these patients. I mean, and it speaks to hospice has failed to do their job. Um, But as your guest has said, you know, we do have the technology, we do have medications to prevent suffering. So instead of passing laws to kill people, why don't we work to um, ensure that people don't want to kill themselves, you know? Um, But, you know, they don't want to seem to ensure patient rights you know, and work to, um, you know, bring comfort to people. But then, and my, one of the questions I had was, when the issue is brought up for vote, and they talk about safeguards, has anyone brought up the fact that in the current state of the healthcare system, there are no safeguards for people, like my husband? You know, um, given the one-size-fit-all treatment of Ativan, morphine, and Haldol, um, whether you need it or not. And it's estimated that 400,000 people every year die this way. It's very upsetting. Um, Or, you know, in the case of being in the ICU, you know, how do you protect the patient from being over-medicated by an overworked nurse who doesn't have the time to properly care for them? I mean, how do we get a right back? Because during the pandemic, when you go in a hospital or a nursing home, we lost all our rights. We lost the right to refuse treatment, and we lost the right to um, a grievance. And to my knowledge, um, those rights haven't been restored. So um, I guess my question, too, to the lawyer is, you know, how do we get our rights back? What do we do? I mean, we can't even get a lawyer to take our cases. And in the cases of people that aren't even terminal, that they die, nothing happens to these people. Yeah, well, that's the challenge. I mean, the the, the legal – first of all, I'm sorry to hear about this tragedy. And the legal system is stacked against 
these type of cases because a lawyer is thinking about his chances of winning and you mm-hmm. surely or likely don't have the funds to mount a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar case against a hospital system and their insurance companies. And um, the other issue is that the, whole, the entire legal system is, uh, is unfortunately being revealed as um, destitute at its core because the negligence standard for malpractice is based on standard of care. If the standard of care today is to murder the patient, then under the law of negligence, then they'll say that, well, doctors, uh, they'll have doctors, experts come and testify that this is what they do in hospitals all across America. So that's what happens when you create the standard. Is, the, the standard for negligence, the standard for malpractice is a standard of care. Well, whatever, what, let's look what everyone else is doing. Now, that might have been a, a reasonable standard at a time when, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's trying their best and we want to see someone who's just being careless or didn't use proper care. Uh, but here we're talking about a situation where this is, the medical system, what's considered accept, uh, acceptable, has shifted to the point where murder is the standard, of course, and standard of care. So I think, I think that the, it's stacked against people uh, from a legal perspective and, it's, and uh, obviously from the way the doctors are being trained. I've, I heard from Dr. Glassman speaking on other occasions about the, how they were being trained as doctors, as young doctors, so that there are times to let patients go. And, uh, you know, there's a Hippocratic oath, and even though he himself was a pagan and, um, and, and, you know, was calling out the names of different pagan gods, but he saw that a doctor had a sacred responsibility not to provide poison to assist in killing a patient, and the doctor also had the obligation not to give a woman a, uh, a potion that would cause an abortion. Well, those phrases have been taken out of the Hippocratic Oath over the last 40 years. Doctors are not even required to say those phrases, and most hospital, most uh, medical schools don't even require the Hippocratic Oath at all. So the doctor that you are going to is not the doctor that you imagine from your childhood. You know, your parents tell you about the sweet country doctor who wants to help everyone and just, you know, they made a mistake once in a while, but he was there to help. These people, unfortunately, are trained in a completely different mechanistic, mechanical um, uh, training of just getting to uh, apply a a book of uh, a million different diagnoses against what uh, what procedure or what medicine should be prescribed. And when it comes to these type of difficult issues where it's going to be costly to the hospital, or as Dr. Glassman was saying before, burdensome for the uh, emotional strain of the staff, um, they're going to pressure people or, or be even behind their backs. I mean, that's what happened in Germany in 1939. The, uh, there was tremendous uproar against this euthanasia program. And it was the pressure from the, a lot of Christians uh, demonstrated against Hitler. And he was forced to publicly cancel the program. So what did they do instead? They killed the patients unofficially by denying them fluid, by denying them food, and by over-medicating them. So the euthanasia program continued unofficially. And so how, how, what can we do? So I, I, you know, in terms of a practical thing, I think that you just have to, we have to train ourselves and our children to, A, find at the outset better sources of health guidance and to avoid 
behaviors that are going to put ourselves into the hands of doctors at some point in our life and look for doctors who are truly committed to taking the care of the patient and what the patient's best interest is, not just making things, doing things because they're afraid of getting sued or they're because they're following the regulations and so forth. And then finally, I think you have to be willing to pull, you have to be willing to take a risk. You have to say, you have to pray about this. You have to say, okay, it's true they're telling me if I take this patient to the hospital, there's a big chance they're going to die. And I'm taking this into my own hands. All this kind of stuff, you have to fight against them to get discharged, AMA against medical advice and so forth. But that's part of what your responsibility, I'm not, I'm not second-guessing anything you did, but I'm saying what can we learn for the future? To say, listen, a, a, taking this patient out of the hospital and even with not knowing what to do could be a better solution, a better course of action, a better end result than leaving them to be, to be eliminated in the hospital. Exactly. And that's, that's what you have to look at and pray for, for guidance. I agree with that statement and that the standard of care is murder. Um, so many people are afraid to go into a hospital, uh, you know, and it's just, this isn't health care anymore. It's frightening what it is. And well, it, is, think... it is the T4 program, you know, uh, um, and people just don't realize it. And, those are, you know, you have those that are going along with it. Uh, I'm just shocked at, <laughs> I mean, it's been about seven years since my husband was murdered, and I'm still aghast at what's course, going on. Uh, <laughs> of course, but I, I think it's, it's always important in every situation from a, from a spiritual perspective to take responsibility for the situation as it exists. And that means all of us. And I, I would like to suggest that we are the creators of our own uh, living hell of the, of the medical system. And that is because we have decided to turn away from God who declares, I am the Lord, your healer. And instead, run to doctors for every single ailment to get acclimatized to the idea that we have to go to a doctor for any type of thing. Um, we have made the doctors into the gurus. We have made the doctors into the um, high priests of society. And when a person makes those decisions and gets themselves in the habit of going to the doctor for everything, they become then, they are turning their mind and their will and their heart over to the care of the doctor as opposed to God. So I think what, what is, what's paining people is the grief of realizing that the person they're putting their trust in is not really trustworthy. But the problem is, from a spiritual perspective, that we put our trust into other human beings. And instead of going to a doctor when it was absolutely necessary, knowing, however, that God is the real healer, God is the one who brings the disease, and God is the one who brings the healing, and we should listen to what the doctor says with complete skepticism and complete willingness to get a second opinion and a third opinion and to go find a doctor who's a trusted friend of ours personally who will tell us behind the scenes what the real story is and what these drugs really do and what treatments are really work and what treatments they wouldn't take themselves. So many times doctors won't even take the treatments that they are advocating for their patients. They won't even take them for themselves or their, same, their, their own family members. If you, if you approach it with a healthy level of skepticism, as you would if you had a $500,000 in your bank account and a guy walks up and says, I'm going to invest that for you and I'm going to get you these kind of results, you'd be like, you know, what do you, you, you wouldn't just give away your money, hopefully. So why are you giving away your life to, or the lives of our loved ones to people who we have decided to put on a, on a pedestal because they wear a white coat? 
And, and so these made, actually these medical aid in dying laws are really a reflection of that problem because the medical aid in dying law says that murder is illegal in the state of New Jersey and assisted, society, assisted suicide is illegal in the state of, state of uh, New Jersey unless the person who's doing it is wearing a white coat. That is the degree to which we have surrendered. And, and by the way, important point to remember over here, who, gets to be, who ends up being murdered is the person, the doctor started the process by giving the death sentence. It's the doctor, the terminal illness diagnosis is not a reality. It's a doctor taking pen to paper and making a death decree against the person and people saying, well, since he wears a white coat, this is fact and then plunges the person into the depression and the despair and the fear and the panic and the anxiety. The doctor caused that. So the doctor is the problem at the end of the murder and the beginning of the murder, which is the death sentence. He's, he's the executioner at the end, and we're all, we're all upset about that, but why are we letting him be the, the prosecutor and the judge to even issue a death sentence in the first place? So because we, take we didn't. Back. We didn't know... And, and this is the one thing that, you know, that we, while we do the programs, right, and Liz, I don't know if you caught what she said before, but Liz, I think I had told you both about the Murdered by Hospice group. Liz is mm-hmm. the founder of that um, Facebook group. But the problem is we, what you're saying right now is absolutely true, right? You cannot just trust every single doctor, no offense, Dr. Glassman, I like my doctor, you know, he's, he's a good guy, but I question things. And I, you know, fortunately I don't have to go to the doctor, you know, once a year if I get there just for a checkup. But we didn't know what we do know now, and that is why I say knowledge is power. So now what Liz is saying, and, and I'm in total agreement, I don't want to go to the hospital, any type of medication, whether it's over-the-counter or if it's a vitamin, I go on Google, and, you know, I hope Google is right or, you know, DuckDuckGo, but I go and I research everything. It's like analysis paralysis because I do not trust the doctors. I don't trust the medical field, and I look up everything now online to see if that's a safe drug. Should I take this? Should I not do this? Should I use essential oils? You know, those are things that we have learned, but we learned it the hard way. We learned it at the expense of our loved one being murdered. Yes, and, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing you or anyone for that. But oh, no, I know, no, I know the that. action we could take, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, 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 I'm not taking it that way. I'm just saying that the people that have not experienced what we've experienced, they're going to mm-hmm. be those people that you're talking about that are going to trust the doctor because he's got a white coat on because they haven't experienced anything bad. And, the, and just like hospice, we're taught hospice is compassionate. We have found out that is not true. So it's for those people who are ignorant because they haven't experienced what we've experienced, and those are the people that we try desperately to reach and to tell them. But we have a lot of people that will say, oh, hospice was great. You know, they helped my loved one, and my loved one died peacefully at home or died peacefully at the hospital. Really? You think they died peacefully? You don't know that they did. You were told they died in their sleep. Well, uh, a coma is also asleep. So how many of those patients that died in their sleep actually died in a coma. So it's, 
you know, it, it, it's it's a twisted society that we live in. Well, um, when yeah, I when I put my husband in the hospice, admitted him there, I was under the assumption, and I never even thought this. But at that time, I thought that murder was illegal, and I didn't know that doctors and nurses were above the law, but I do now. And I appreciate you pointing that out to the listeners, because people need to know. They absolutely yeah, I would just, yeah no, uh, as Dr. Glassman, um, I would, and I'm not offended, by the way, when you know, we're talking about doctors in this way, because I know myself, you know, I, take, I hope I take exception to this. I avoid doctors too, for sure. I mean, we should all avoid doctors as much as possible unless we absolutely need them. There's no question about it, myself included. The the key, I think, in finding the right type of doctor is someone who knows that they're an emissary of the infinite creator. If a doctor does not realize that, that is, their role is to be an emissary of God and not, you know, not their own God and not their, you know, because they know science that they are, they can act like God, there's a big difference. You know, if, if someone is, 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 uh, has enough humility to say, it's not me, it's God, I'm just a, an emissary, I'm just a, a, a tool, so to speak, uh, in the, a mediator, uh, then that's, that's, the healthy, that's the healthy type of doctor's relationship, patient-doctor relationship you want to have, and finding the right person that, that realizes that they are not the, 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 the end-all, be-all you know, who says what's what, you know dictates what's what's going to happen? Um, I, I want to jump in here. Oh, okay. I, well, I just want to ask. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Doctor. Wanted... You wanted to mention about the. the uh, sorry, we keep tripping on each other. Uh, <laughs> you're the host. You go first. But I want to. Okay, go ahead. No, go ahead. I just, Dr. Glassman wanted to make an appeal for, you know, people and your listeners who are able to support and contribute to the LifelineLegalFund.com. Dr. Glassman, you want to just mention that because I know we're getting close to the end of the time. Yes, I, I think people are asking and thinking, well, what can we do to really fight the fight? And that's, we, you know, myself and uh, Rabbi Smith and others, uh, we feel that we're on the front line of this. We're down in the trenches. We're fighting the legal fight. We're uh, all, and we're fighting the moral fight to convince people of the of the the the, think, the proper way of thinking about these things, the proper way of thinking about medications and suffering. And for those who really want to fight the fight and really want to join us, not only in New Jersey but really all the way to the top to the Supreme Court, with God's help, we should get there. Is to really donate and to contribute to to our fund, our legal fund, Lifeline Legal Fund dot com and and really make a and can really have a big impact. So I really want to make that that plea for people to to uh, contribute to, in order to really allow us to to really continue to push forward. Okay, and that is lifelinelegalfund.com altogether, one word. Um, I know we're getting short on time, but I wanted to if two things. I wanted to mention that Rabbi Smith is a pro-life attorney. And I have reached out um, on your behalf to Alexander Snyder with Life Legal Defense Foundation. Um, I haven't heard back from her, but hoping that he can be added to their list of pro-life attorneys um, in the United States. And he is in New Jersey. So if we have any New Jerseyans listening, um, Rabbi E. David Smith, Smith & Associates, 
is you know where you can look look him up as a pro life attorney. Um, and the other thing, the cannabinoid therapeutic is that with it's like CBD oil. Uh, yes, that's with CBD oil, but any of the cannabinoids. In other words, the entire cannabis plant has not only CBD but also THC, and it's a very potent and effective tool that physicians have to treat pain, suffering without accelerating the death of patient. It's, a, it's the least it's the least toxic medication known to humankind, and I would I strongly advocate for its use, in, especially in these type of circumstances, because it it can alleviate pain and suffering. And it, and it does not res, suppress uh, respiration. So any type of canna, medical cannabis is a, is a, it's a very potent tool uh, for, and for end of life. And also for anxiety, right? Does for anxiety, right. Anxiety? Even day-to-day CBD oil is a very, it can be an effective treatment for anxiety. It's a very safe, safe and effective tool for anxiety as well. Would it also help um, a patient who is not eating very well? I know, like, you know, regular pot would make you get the munchies and you'd eat a lot. So is that something that could be used to, you know, get someone to eat, eat, to eat better, eat more? Yes, absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful tool for appetite, for anxiety, for pain. Uh, inflammation. It's, it's a potent anti-inflammatory, a natural anti-inflammatory. So yes, uh, it's, it, 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 it affects the body at multiple levels in a, in a positive and a safe fashion. So, so absolutely, for appetite is a, is a key thing, especially in those who are failing to thrive. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, uh, well, thank you both. I know we could have gone on for another half hour, but we have 24 seconds left. So thank you both for coming on tonight and sharing your information with us. It was an excellent program, and I appreciate everything that you have said. And keep fighting the fight, and let me know how that's going for you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. For our listeners, thank you for joining us tonight, and we will be back in two weeks with um, the lady from that you had told me about um, Mr. Smith on Angelina Ireland from Delta Hospice in Canada that was shut down because they refused to kill their patients with euthanasia. So we'll be back in two weeks. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Good night. Thank you.